So we're um, reading today the story from John 2 um, of Jesus changing water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood sticks, stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants knew who had drawn the water. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There where they stayed for a few days. Amazing, thank you. Brilliant. How are we? Are we okay? Are we okay? Are we okay? I can say that properly. I'm clearly not okay. No. <laughs> Slurring my words. Amazing. So uh, we are um, currently doing a sermon series over the summer uh, where we just kind of in some sort of chronological order, begin to unpack uh, who Jesus is and um, use some of the things that he did and some of the, um, the people that he spent time with and the way he taught and so on, just to try and understand who he was so that it can help us, so that we can relate to him better and, and so on. And today, um, the talk is all about Jesus is joy. Jesus is fun. Jesus is happy. Uh, that's not often something I think we associate with Jesus, is it? And I think mainly that's because what we do is we often associate what we see of the church with who Jesus is. And in the most part, church can be, hopefully you don't feel that about here, can be a little bit boring. Okay? Certainly I grew up in a church that I felt was quite boring. In fact, there's those who might have seen the fact that we played a game this morning and did a challenge and actually wouldn't agree with it. But my church as a kid, like I said, it was really dull and um, actually probably uh, managed to colour in the whole of the Amazon rainforest during the services um, that I spent there. And, and literally that was it. That was all they had for me to do. It was like a crossword or a, and it, it, it didn't really connect. I couldn't see why God was relevant, let alone fun. So how on earth can I stand up here and say Jesus is fun? Does God actually care about joy? Does he care that you smile, that you laugh? that you're happy. Let's have a little think. Well, first of all, I mean, we can't forget the fact that he did play hide and seek with his followers for three days when he went into that tomb. Plus, he did spend most of his time with 12 men, and many a wife will tell you from just spending lots of time with one that you do need a good sense of humor to do that, right? <laughs> Nothing ever gets done, right? You know, God literally, literally created fun. He literally created it. It was his idea. 
In fact, can you imagine the great time that him and Adam had naming animals in Genesis? He literally just made up words depending on how he felt an animal looked. And I, some of them I think he nailed. Crocodile, lion, you know, fair. They seem to look like the animal that they are. But I think, I'm not going to lie, I think the hippopotamus probably responded a little bit differently to them when he heard his name. In Psalm 16 and Psalm 21, the writer talks about being filled with joy in God's presence. When God is present, we are filled with joy. It means he brings it, he knows it, and he wants it for you. So not only is there healing and peace and other things that we see in God's presence, God's being there can actually be associated with fun and happiness and joy. So much so, it's actually a fruit of the Spirit. We forget that. Some of you guessed the catchphrase before, fruit of the Spirit. It wasn't that, I'm afraid. But joy is one of those fruits. It's one of the things that basically God says, this is a a sign that the Spirit is at work in that person's life. Maybe we focus more on other ones, but joy is in there and it's just as important. Not only does he want you to be filled up with it, but he wants you to release it and take it to other people so other people can sense that joy. Laughter is one of the most common manifestations of the Spirit. What I mean by that is when we welcome the Holy Spirit, as we sometimes do here, or we always do, I hope, um, (laughs) as we always do here um, during ministry and during other things that we're doing, and we allow him to speak and to minister, minister to us, one of the most common human reactions, one of the most common human responses is laughter. It's a release. We're designed in such a way that laughter can act as medicine. I bet you can all think of that one person or those, those friends that can make you laugh so much that you, you snort back up whatever you've been drinking. Yeah? You feel good after you've laughed, don't you? It's a release. Or those people who make you belly laugh. Your belly literally physically laughs, like almost laughs as well, you know? Or you cry with laughter and you just can't control it. It even says in the Bible that whenever someone decides to follow Jesus, that there is a party that is happening in heaven, celebrating that someone has come home. And did you know in the last hundred years, the number of Christians in the world has gone from around 600. All those people who make you belly laugh, your belly literally physically laughs. We didn't intend that, but it kind of works for this, doesn't it? Anyone help with that? (laughs) Am I just going to have to hear it myself every 10 minutes? No, no, don't worry. The, the people at the back who know what they're doing don't, don't look like they understand either, so that's good. <laughs> I'll let me say that again. So even in the Bible, when it says that someone has decided, when someone, it says when someone's decided to follow Jesus, they throw a big party to celebrate the fact that somebody has come home. And in the last 100 years, the number of Christians in the world has gone from around 600 million to around 2.6 billion. It sounds to me like heaven is having a lot of fun. A lot of partying going on. So when we talk about fun, what we aren't doing is saying that Jesus liked to make fun of somebody or even that he was like a class clown. As Jenna said in week one, Jesus is focused. That was the first week. That was the first thing we looked at. Jesus is focused on what he has come to do. And we'll actually see it in this story too. But what if, right, what he has come to do means joy for everybody? And so in doing what he has done, 
To not see us enjoy the grace and the love that he offers would mean that we don't fully understand just how great it is. In Hebrews 12, it says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy set before him, for the joy that he could see, for you and for me, Jesus endured the cross. Joy, fun, laughter, smiling, it all matters to God. I am... Um, I had a favorite film as a kid, and the favorite film was The Three Musketeers. Show of hands if you've seen The Three Musketeers, the original, obviously not this weird one where the, where the ships fly and all that kind of stuff. I was really excited to see that, but yeah, let me down. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, it was a pretty epic film. Like, I absolutely loved it. Uh, I think I got stopped from watching it because I used to try and sword fight with my sister, and obviously I, I won, and she wasn't very happy about that. Um, but basically, great film. I loved it. And so we got invited. I got invited like as a sort of teenager to this uh, fancy dress party. And I had um, two other mates who were, who were kind of asking. And they'd been, been invited too. And they were asking, what should we go as? And I was like, well, there's three of us. Let's go as the three musketeers. My day has come. I get to be D'Artagnan. This is going to be special, really special. And so I literally spent hours and days in school convincing them that this was a great idea. We should go as the three musketeers to this party. And so I, I even like drove, I, can't, I, can't, I didn't drove them, but I, I, I think I got my dad to drive us to a fancy dress shop and I was like convincing the three musketeers, that's the one, that's the one we've got to do. And then when we arrived at the, at the, at the actual day, um, all seemed to be going pretty, pretty well, uh, other than the fact that um, I'd actually um, had to go to a meal before I went to this party. And... Um, I completely forgot to bring that, uh, that outfit. And so I turned up at that party with no fancy dress costume on whatsoever. The two musketeers were absolutely fuming with me. Doesn't work quite as well, does it? They have honestly, literally never let me live it down. And I felt so awkward that day as well because I, I kind of, in a way, brought shame on my friends. Like, they, like everyone else was dressed in fancy dress. When you turn up at a fancy dress party, it's normal. If I turned up... In a Three Musketeer outfit, only Aaron would think that was normal here, right? Everybody else would be like, Tim, what are you doing? But if you go to a fancy dress party and everybody's dressed in fancy dress and you turn up in your own stuff, you, you're the odd one out, aren't you? You feel that sense of shame, okay? Well, for me, I, I felt like I'd brought shame on my friends, on these two other musketeers. They wanted to disown me. They've literally never let me live it down. With every uh, wedding party... Stay with me here. <laughs> with every wedding party, um, as we heard about in the, in the Bible story, there was a master of banquet, and their job was to rule the roost. They were in charge of the day, of how things went, of the celebrations. Whatever he said went. He was chosen to lead the whole day, to hold it together. And the norm was that there would be enough wine for a seven-day event. Weddings lasted a week. Anybody fancy a party that lasts a week? Not many of you, actually. Just Jenna. Great. And what they would do is they would give out the fancy wine at the start, and then basically over the week they would kind of get less and less in terms of it being nice because basically by that point people's taste buds had forgotten what wine tasted like. And so they gave out the, the, kind, of, the kind of worst stuff then. And the whole of the town were invited, and the, the other person uh, who, who would have played a key role, and th this doesn't seem to happen anymore um, was the husband or the husband-to-be 
Uh, did anyone ever used to watch Don't Tell the Bride? Yeah, right. But you don't want to leave the husband in charge of much, do you? When it comes to a wedding, you really don't. So I, there was a few examples in that, but there was the, probably the worst one was the time that the husband-to-be uh, spent the whole £12,000 that they were given by the TV show on his stag do in Vegas. And then he even, he, this, it gets better, he even had said, actually, I'm going to fly you out to come and join us for this wedding in Vegas, but you have to choose between your sister and your brother and who you would like to invite. Yeah. Don't leave the husbands in charge of things. <laughs> oh. But the husband-to-be's job, basically within this, was to make sure that there was enough wine. It was a show and a symbol of his ability to provide for this new family, his new wife. So to not have enough is going to bring shame on the husband in front of everyone that they lived with in their town. They really, honestly, would not have lived it down. You see, letting everyone who would come for a week-long party down and standing out like a sore thumb as everyone else's wedding had fully provided for the town, it was just them that hadn't. And it would have left the master of the banquet with no choice but to put an end to this party, an end to the fun and the joy people were having together. And again, this wouldn't have been a good look for him either. There was even a saying, when the wine runs out, it's the end of the party. I've got two musketeer friends who would agree with that. And at first, right, it seems as though Jesus isn't so keen on doing this miracle. But his words are important in figuring out why he actually does end up doing it. And the whole miracle, I believe, points to the reason he has come at all. It had been hundreds of years since the last miracle when Daniel saved, uh, was saved from the lion's den. And something like this, where nobody's dying, nobody's sick, nobody's deeply in need, it seems like a little bit of an odd choice for Jesus to begin with, doesn't it? In fact, we rarely talk about it. The miracles he did, healing leprosy, blindness, paralysis, oh yeah, and you know, raising the dead, they tend to get a little bit more attention, a bit more attraction. And I'm not being funny, but I'd be thinking, if, G- if Jesus' mum came over to me, or my mum came over to me, I don't, um, it's their mess. They can sort it out. It's not my problem, is it? And so after approaching Jesus to tell him about the problem, Jesus' response in a really simplified way is, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. In other words, I'm now entering the time when my ministry has begun and everything I do is going to point to the final hour, a once and for all sacrifice. I am focused. If it is the will of the Father, I will do it. But if not, I won't. To which Mary then responds by turning to the servers at the party. She doesn't even look at Jesus. She doesn't even say anything back to Jesus. She literally just turns to them and just tells them to listen to him. Do what he says. It was certainly the will of his mother. This moment is so loaded, right? Mary has watched Jesus grow up. And as one of Jesus' disciples, John, alludes to in chapter 21, not every miracle Jesus did is actually recorded. So it's likely her confidence in him is founded in what she's seen. And potentially her confidence in how she asks him is founded in knowing his ultimate purpose too. Mums are good at sensing when the time is right. 
sensing his time had come. And so Jesus stands up, casually turns water into wine, not just any wine, the best wine, and then sends it off with the servers to the master of the banquet. You see, in doing this, Jesus takes on the role of master of banquet and husband. Let me explain. Not only does this wine, the best ever tasted, taken from ordinary water in ordinary stone jars, mean that the party can continue. It also takes away the shame of the husband. Jesus, the true master of the banquet, the one who rules the roost, calls himself the bread of life and fills us with living, not ordinary, living water. Choosing to pay the ultimate price so that we no longer need to drink the cheap wine, but are served the best for eternity, even if we don't deserve it. And Jesus, the true husband, who can provide for his bride, the church. It's, it's, it's a symbol in the Bible. The, the, the Bible says that um, the church is, is Christ's bride. It's Jesus' bride. So we're playing on that metaphor. And as Paul says, um, as Paul says in Ephesians, that is, that is exactly what he's talking about. He takes our shame. He takes our guilt with him on the cross once and for all. He deals with it. He can provide. And in order that we remember this transformational moment, wine is what Jesus tells his followers to use as the symbol of his blood. Why? Well, because communion shouldn't just be for us a reminder of his sacrifice, but also a celebration of the everlasting joy God promises each of us. This theme, it continues throughout that whole book of John. It's in there. In verse 7, Jesus speaks to the crowd at the festival of the tabernacles. It's a party all about the exodus. And he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. If you're spiritually thirsty, then the ordinary water that you've been drinking, it's just not going to do the trick. But living water will. So Jesus says, come to me. In verse 15, Jesus says he is the true vine, as in the grapevine, as in what we use to make wine. Those who remain in him are going to bear much fruit. But in verse 11, he says, I have told you all of this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Stick with me. The maker of the best wine, not the cheap stuff. And I will fill you with joy. There's a famous preacher and theologian called Charles Spurgeon. And he had a lot to say about God's joy. So I'd encourage you, if you're interested in this or you want to kind of explore this more, go and read a little bit of Charles Spurgeon. And he said this, believers are not dependent upon circumstances. Their joy comes not from what they have, but from what they are. Not from where they are, but from whose they are. Not from what they enjoy, but from that which was suffered for them by their Lord. Should I say that again? Believers are not dependent upon circumstances. Their joy comes from what they have. Not, not, <laughs> let me say that again. Their joy comes not from what they have, but from what they are. Not from where they are, but from whose they are, not from what they enjoy, but from that which was suffered for them.
by their Lord. This morning, I believe that Jesus wants to release some joy. Do you want some joy? Do you want to smile? Do you want to be happy? I believe he wants to free us. I believe he wants to remind us that we're loved, that we're forgiven, that we're accepted, and that we can trust him as our provider. We can let go of anxieties and worries and trust in Jesus, the provider. And for the true master of the banquet to fill us up again with the absolute best wine, a living water that fully satisfies. If you'd like to be filled, would you stand, would you stand up? Maybe you've never done this before. That's okay. If you don't feel comfortable, that's fine. You can stay sat down. You can do it from there. And um, I just encourage you to put your hands out in, in front of you as if you're receiving something. It just kind of puts us in the right place. And then we're going to close our eyes. And all we're going to do, and you've got nothing to lose if you're here and you've never done this before. But we believe that God is alive. We believe that he's here now. His spirit is in us. And we believe that he wants to fill you up afresh. Maybe life has felt quite stressful recently. Maybe there's been a lot going on. Maybe you haven't had time to breathe, time to think. But I believe that God wants to fill you up with his joy. It's almost no coincidence that Eli is just having a lot of fun with a balloon at the front here. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to smile in this moment. Don't feel like you have to go serious. Jesus wants to fill you again with his joy. So Holy Spirit, would you come now? Remind us like it's the first time that you love us, that we're accepted. Jesus, that you're happy, that you're smiling at us. Fill us up to overflow, Spirit, with your joy. Give us feet to dance. Remove our worries. Remind us that you are provider. having trouble in any way with this like just close your eyes encourage you to close your eyes and just picture a Jesus that is smiling at you he loves you in all your fullness <laughs>